Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Uh, so if you can find your way there, page 1010 in your pew Bibles in front of you. Matthew 5, we're going to be in verse 1 and 2, and then to set the stage, and then 13 to 16. So if you would stand with me, we'll read through that. I'm, I know Brian is probably listening, thinking I should do the Shema. I'm going to let that be his thing, all right? So verse 1 and 2 says, Now when he saw the crowds, that's Jesus, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, and we're going to skip over to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that uh, we, would, we would learn something new about you today, that we would be challenged to grow deeper in our walk with you. Uh, even though this is probably a passage that's familiar to many of us, I pray that this would be something that uh, we can look at in a new way today. In your name, amen. You can be seated. All right, most of you probably know who I am, but some of you don't, so it's, I guess, a rule that I have to introduce myself. My mom's even videotaping me right now. Um, my name is Aaron Richbart. Um, my family sits all around. My parents are over here, my brother, my sister, um, my wife and son over there. Hi, Danny. Um, my wife, Rebecca, and her family's over there as well. Danny, how old are you? Seven. Danny's seven. Um, is there anyone else uh, tree climber age in, this, in the audience right now? Anyone else tree climbers? You would know who you are. Okay. I can't see who's raising their hand, but I don't think that's who is really tree climber age. Okay, good. All right, well, this will be interesting later in the service when I call up the tree climbers. So if you know that there's one in the service in the back, just bring them in. Um, have you ever committed to something that uh, maybe you didn't know what you were getting into? Um, well, yesterday we were playing a game over at my uh, in-law's house for Christmas. We were celebrating the Miller Christmas, and we've created this game, which has somewhat become a tradition, called What Would You Give Me? Um, it, it's a very simple game. Anyone can play it. All you need is six dice. Um, but the whole concept is, so if it's my turn to roll, I'm going to take the dice, and I'm going to roll them one at a time, and the objective for me is to get a straight, all six of them, six dice straight, six dice straight. And uh, if I do that, then I would get whatever everyone else says they'd give me. So before I actually roll, we go around the circle, and everyone says, oh, I'll give you um, a vacation. Uh, yeah, it's that crazy, because... When we first played this, we thought, what are the odds? Like, we up. We, we just thought, these are low odds. And, and they really are. But the, the things that we were offering were way too high, um, way too good. Um, yesterday, Rebecca offered to pay off someone's student loan debt. <laughs> I did not appreciate that one. Um, but Alexis did not roll a straight. However, 
In the history of the miller honecki Richbar game, we had our first straight yesterday. Jared Honacki rolled a straight, um, so he's owed a lot of different things. Um, fortunately for me, I gave something that's realistic, and I'll probably be out only about $100 or $200. Um, hey, that's compared to student loan debt, I'm good. <laughs> so likewise, those people that were playing that game didn't really expect to have to do something, maybe didn't know what they were getting into when they said, oh, I'll pay off your student loan debt, oh, I'll give you this one-day vacation. I was asked to do this sermon, and I said yes. Maybe I didn't know what I was getting into. I was assigned a song, which turns out to be my wife's favorite song. Jokingly, the reason why everyone laughed when that was said before is because it's not. It's her least favorite song. Um, maybe, I don't know if it's ever, but Christmas Carol, I would say, we'll say that. Um, and there's others in my family that have also voiced a similar opinion, um, but it's all right. And then I find out, oh, there's going to be kids in the, in the audience, too. So, uh, so I didn't know what I was getting into when I said yes, but we're going we're gonna to go together, all right? All right. So let's first talk about this, this song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Um, some of you probably may know the, the history of this song. We sing it just like um, Brian was saying last week. We, we sing these songs all the time. We don't even really think about too much about what they are or what's in them. Uh, but this is actually an African-American spiritual, and the writer of this song is unknown, but it dates back to somewhere around the Civil War time. So it was probably, when I say the word written, it wasn't literally written down. This was a song that was passed on from plantation to plantation, probably by slaves during the Civil War time period. Um, probably by people that can't read or write, but it was passed on from generation to generation. And in the early 1900s, someone by the name of John Wesley Work Jr., not John Wesley, John Wesley Work, middle name Wesley. Probably his parents liked John Wesley. But um, this man went on a mission to compile all the African-American spirituals uh, that weren't written down, and he wanted to publish them. And so he went on this mission to do it, and in 1901, he published his first book, that did not include this song, but in 1907, he did publish the first written down version of this song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, and that is almost identical to exactly what we just sang. Um, so let's go to the next slide. We'll look at the chorus. Um, instead of singing it, I'm not doing that, um, we're, we're just going to look at it because sometimes when you actually read something, it, it means a little bit more to you than when you sing it, or means something different, at least. Um, so, uh, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Uh, there's many, belie many believe that there's actually two verses in the Bible, in Isaiah, uh, Mario already referenced one of them, um, that um, actually are, are sort of give the context to where these, this song came from. Outside of, in, in the verses, it's really the story of uh, the, uh, the nativity scene, right? It's, it's the shepherds hearing and going and telling. Um, but this is a little bit different. If you just looked at this, the only part that's Christmas is Jesus Christ is born, right? Everything else, go and tell. Tell people about Jesus. Um, and so let's look at these verses. The, the first one, Isaiah 40, verse 9. It says, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. 
You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Let's look at the next one, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And there's probably a reason why they think these songs, this song was, or the writer of the song was thinking about these verses. Is, I mean, there's similar themes, but the one that sticks out to me um, is um, the mountain, the mountain theme. And uh, Danny, can you come up here? Any other tree climbers? I don't know. I didn't see any hands, but if you're in tree climbers, come on up. If not, we're going to make do. Good. All right, Danny, come on over here. You're going to have to wear all of this equipment. Okay. Oh, you got boots on already? Take those off. I'm going to put these boots on. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, well, they're, they're mine. Uh, so, the Rich Bart family likes to do some hiking and backpacking. Um, and while we're doing this, uh, you can, we can show the, uh, the slides of the pictures. We can just keep rolling through those, just let them sit for a little bit. Um, back in August, Danny and I had the opportunity to do some mountain climbing in the Adirondacks. And that's what these pictures are from. Here, hold these. They're Uncle Dan's. Don't break them. Okay, good. You can look at the pictures, too. Um, but we have all this stuff, and I, I was going to have every uh, tree climber sound to hold these things, but we're, we're not going to waste our time then uh, handing them out to just Danny. Maybe I'll make him wear a backpack. Um, but uh, things like all this backpack equipment, uh, sleeping bags, we have a, a hammock. Thought about hooking that up up here for you, but no. Okay. Nope. Okay. And, and, so, and this is a day pack. This is what we actually wore. I'm, I guess I'm, in, I'm taking most of the pictures, so you probably don't see me wearing this backpack. But um, uh, things that you bring in a Backpack and your day pack are, are snacks. Here, would you like a snack? Sure. See, you all lost out, tree climbers. I hope this is being recorded. Thank There's you. a lot of snacks up here. Okay. Um, yeah. Ask your mother. Okay, good. You can have it. Okay. Um, and water. Do you need some water? Okay. Fortunately, Aunt Barb reminded me that I'm going to have water in my, my pack, so I don't need to have it on the stage. Um, but we did two, two mountains, Cascade and Porter. Um, you did a good job. You can put your other boots on or wear those. Yeah, thank you. Okay, you can head on down, Danny. Thank you. You can take your snack with you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I guess that's why they asked me to do it, because everyone's gone this week, huh? <laughs> so we did Cascade and Porter. Uh, they're two of the 46 high peaks in the Adirondack region. Um, and our, the Richbart family is sort of on a mission to accomplish all 46. Does, has anyone in the church here today actually a 46er? That's what it means, you did all 46? Has anyone? Okay. Dad, how many have you done? How many have you done? 30? Okay, so he's at about 30. I'm in the low teens. We've started to just do vacations without people because there's too many of us now. Um, and so I haven't gone in a little while, except for this one with Danny. Um, but anyway, before we get into our text, uh, let's do a little bit of mountain trivia. Um, 
maybe you know some things about mounds, or maybe you're about to learn things about mounds that you had no idea existed. Um, the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, okay? That's probably the one that's most common that most people know. Um, but did you know that it was in 1802 that the British started out what was called the Great Trigonometrical Survey of the Indian subcontinent? And so in 1802, they start on this mission to chart all the mountains in that area. And um, it wasn't until 1852 that they realized Everest is the tallest, like by far. And so they, without the use of GPS or anything like that, they used math to find out, well, how tall is this? And they were actually within 30 feet of what, with the GPS we have today, says that uh, Everest is at 29,029 feet above sea level, which is pretty high. It was first ascended, which means someone got to the top of it in 1953, at least recorded. That's the first one that we know of, 1953. So this whole thing of climbing Everest is actually kind of recent um, in terms of time. Um, but in, so in 1852, it's discovered that Everest is the tallest mountain. Before that, what was the tallest mountain? Right, some of you understand the joke. Everest was still the tallest. <laughs> yep. Um, I think K2 is the next tallest, but um, Everest is there. Does anyone know the highest peak in America? Denali, yeah, that's not in the continental U.S., that's up in Alaska. That's at 20,310 feet. How about in the continental U.S.? Mount Whitney, yeah, Mount Whitney in California, 14,505 feet. And how about in New York? Marcy. You don't know who did it, but good job. That's a lot shorter, though, 5,344 feet. Um, so um, we've got a long way to go. But if you've ever been next to a mountain, the, the 5,344 feet of Marcy, if, when you're standing at the bottom, that's still huge. Okay? So regardless of comparing them to each other, this is gigantic, right? So Marcy is still a high mountain, just not as high above sea level as um, Everest or Denali or Whitney. Now let's look at some mountains in the Bible, how about? Uh, this is one of the things that obviously interests me, so I figured, well, let's look at maybe different mountain stories throughout Scripture and, uh, and take a deeper look at them. So one of the most probably famous stories in the Bible about a mountain is Mount Sinai. Um, and actually, some modern-day mountain that people attribute to being the actual Mount Sinai from the Bible, um, just for your knowledge, they believe that's about 7,497 feet, if it's the right one. So let's set the scene. The Israelites have been enslaved by Egypt for a long time, but now Moses, through God, has set them free. They've crossed the Red Sea, God has provided manna and quail for food. He's provided water from a rock. God has provided victory over the Amalekites when Moses' arms were propped up. When his arms were in the air, they were winning the battle. When his arms came down, they were losing the battle. So they propped up his arms so they would win. And now, in Exodus 19, they're camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. So let's read here. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. We'll skip on to verse 16. The next slide. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. This is awesome and terrifying at the same time, right? If, you, if you've read this and read it along with me, and, and we'll get to this in one second, um, but right before this, that's chapter 20, I think I wrote 19. It's actually 20. And after Moses goes up on this mountain, so God calls him up. God tells him the Ten Commandments. Uh, he gives, them, gives him even these stone tablets in which they're written. And then the next slide, Exodus 20, says, this is, says 19. I, it's a typo on my fault. When the people saw the th- thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. As you can see, if you were there, put yourself in the Israelites' shoes. What you're visually seeing and and hearing is terrifying. Like, this is awesome. And, And like wet your pants kind of scary, right? Like, if you saw this, if you heard this, the, the sound of God speaking to Moses and saying, come on up, and the people are so afraid, they said, don't even let God talk to us. You talk to us yourself. You go find out what God wants, and we'll listen to you. So Moses goes up the mountain. God talks to him, gives him the Ten Commandments. He also gives him more than just the Ten Commandments. He tells him rules and laws. He talks about the Sabbath, some annual festivals, offerings, how to build the tabernacle. He's up there for a long time. He comes down and up a couple times. And his face, Moses' face, even glows when he comes down from being in the presence of God. And he, he shields his face at times as well. The nation, though, instantly disobeys God. Because at the bottom of the mountain, when Moses is up there for 40 days talking with God, and the people are like, oh, something's wrong. Moses hasn't come back. They're like, hey, Aaron, Moses' brother, FYI, Aaron's, the name Aaron means mountain or, or high or exalted. That's why I'm doing this message. <laughs> but in this case, Aaron made a mistake. Aaron built this golden calf of, from the earrings and the jewelry that the people had, and the people started to worship this idol that was to represent Yahweh, their God. And that's exactly what God in the Ten Commandments just said, don't do. And God gets really mad. He says, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start all over. There's a weird interaction here where Moses sort of 
convinces God to ch- and changes his mind and says, hey, don't do that. What about all the promises and the covenants you made with Abraham, with Isaac? Are you going to just forget about those guys? And so it seems like God changes his mind a little bit in this story. It's kind of crazy. And then God establishes another covenant with his people, with Moses. In Exodus 34, we have a slide for that. It says, Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Right after this, God tells Moses, there's just this one little thing, I know, like, I'll do this thing, all you have to do is obey all the commands I told you, and we'll be good, right? That's basically what he says, too. He says, obey the commands that I've told you, and I'll go with you, we'll be good. And he says, don't worship any other gods. And there's so much in this story, we could spend a ton of time on the Sinai story. We've now crossed over 15, 16 chapters. I, I highly recommend it. It's just a fun read to read from Exodus 19 to the end. Um, some of it is repeated, like how to build the tabernacle because God tells Moses and then Moses tells the people. Um, so there's some parts where it's, it's repeated, but the story part of that section is so fun. Um, so I highly recommend, if you haven't read that recently, to do that. But we're not here... I'm going to spend a ton of time, more time, in Mount Sinai right now, um, because that, the main reason that we are here today, when we're talking about go tell it on the mountain, is so that we can see how people of that time may have perceived mountains. Um, we, from just this experience, this story, we know that the Israelites now have this story ingrained in their culture of this is what happens at the mountain, at Mount Sinai. If you were there, you're never going to forget this, right? And there's other good mountains in the Bible. Sinai is probably the most uh, popular, but there's other stories where good things happen on mountains um, or just some crazy things. And Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, right? That's an awesome one. We're not going to look at it, but in that story, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to burn up Um, an offering. And Elijah even pours water on his offering, and God completely consumes the offering, and the water is all dried up, and the rocks are gone, right? So that's an awesome story. That's on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. And how about Abraham willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on the top of a mountain? And that's in Genesis 22. And I could go on and on. There's a bunch of them. Um, But there's a central theme to these stories about mountains that we say, oh, those are awesome. Those are great, good stories about mountains. And the theme is that mountains were associated with these great acts of God. Just like God does this amazing thing on Sinai. He does this amazing thing on Mount Carmel. He does this amazing thing by providing the ram for uh, Abraham's sacrifice so he doesn't sacrifice his son, but he sees the, the... faith that Abraham had. Now, in ancient times, and even somewhat today, uh, mountains were perceived as the closest you could get to the heavens or the gods. Think about Mount Olympus, like the Greek culture, right? They, they believed Zeus lived it there. If you've seen Hercules, if there's kids in the audience, have you seen Hercules, the Disney movie? Danny? Yeah, thumbs up. Good. Okay, that's not accurate. Okay, have the disclaimer, okay? But in that movie, right, 
Zeus lives on top of Mount Olympus. That's, that's where the gods lived. And, and you could tell that people at that time sort of accepted that. It was sort of a, a wide uh, accepted thought that the higher you get on earth, the closer you are to heaven. So go up the mountains. And not all mentions of the word mountain in the Bible turn out to be good. Um, there, are, there are bad mentions of stories of what happens on mountains. Um, many kings who did not follow God allowed worship of other gods on the high places and on the mountains. Let's look at 2 Kings 17. It says, All this took place, and by all this took place, this is right after Samaria, the capital city of Israel, fell to Assyria. So this is a big deal. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. Remember the covenant that Moses made? And then we're, we're jumping over to here. All this took pl- haste. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, which is exactly what God told them not to do, and followed the practices of other nations the Lord had driven out before them, which in that story before he had said, wipe them all out, don't even make treaties with them because this is going to happen. And it did. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill or mountain and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. And then the next slide, Isaiah 65 See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure it into their laps, the full payment for their former deeds. If you read through the story of First and Second Kings, it's sort of easy to tell the religious climate of the time by just looking to the mountains. If they reference the kings putting up Asherah poles and setting up high places to worship foreign gods, you knew this was a bad king. And then sometimes you had kings that would knock those things down, like Josiah. Josiah was a young king that discovered the law and, the pro- and, and, and when he had it read, he went and said, okay, let's, let's knock all these things down. So he, he was obedient. He knocked those things down. He was a good king and sort of course-corrected for the whole nation a little bit. But the main point we get from this is you can tell a nation's religious tendencies by looking to the mountains in this, in this case, right? But more often than not in those First and Second Kings books, the nation's heart was far from God. Just like how Josiah tore down the, the high places to false gods, um, about five or six, seven years ago, I had the chance to go to Haiti uh, four times in a two-year period. Um, and some of you guys got to come with us. Um, I know Uncle Dan, my dad went, um, my sister Hannah went. Is anyone else in here? The Hines? 
Heinz back there, they went with us. Anyone else went get to Haiti? Is that Alicia? Yeah, Alicia went. So we had a bunch of us head on out to Haiti, and I got to go on all four of the trips. And uh, in Haiti, um, there's a mountain that we were on most of the time that we were there. And uh, it's called Bellevue Mountain. And uh, it was essentially uh, the voodoo capital of Haiti. Like, this mountain was where those that practice witchcraft and voodoo would actually perform their religious ceremonies on top of this mountain. Um, and many people would come from all over to practice this. And in 2011, uh, a woman by the name of Megan, um, she moved to Haiti and essentially reclaimed this mountain for God. Um, and it's, it's awesome. She tells these crazy stories. Um, but, but now they have a school on this mountain that has 500 kids. More than 500 kids are being educated on this exact mountain. They have a medical center that has been built on the mountain. They have Saturday discipleship and feedings that happen on the mountain where they just invite anyone to come, that any of the kids that need food, they, they bring them in. And over 60% of those kids that are in the school are actually Restivex, which is a, is a term that's used to essentially say, legalized slaves. Um, so in, in Haiti, that's a real thing, where kids are enslaved and work for different families that are not their own because the economic situation is so poor that parents can't afford to take care of their own kids, and so they usually sell them off. Um, so, not to make everyone sad here, but so th the idea is that Megan has reclaimed this mountain for God, just like Josiah is reclaiming the mountains for God. And so now, as we move back to our original text where we started in Matthew 5, um, and we can look at that slide here. And I'm not reading verse 1 and 2 before, but this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is, um, Jesus is on the mountain when he's saying this. Um, and so that's why I wanted to read verse 1 and 2 before when we first started, to see that he's sitting on a mountain, and this is very similar to the story of Mount Sinai in the Old Testament where God is speaking to Moses, Moses is speaking to the people, and in this situation, <laughs> Jesus himself is speaking to his disciples and the people on the mountainside. Let's read this. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, did you know that the Bible was not written in English? I'm sure some of you know this, and many of you probably do, but I think sometimes we forget about this. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in mostly Hebrew, some Aramaic. Daniel was written in two languages. Cool story. But it's not written in English, so when we look at different things in the Bible, that's why when Brian talks about, this is what the Hebrew word means, it's so cool because it's not our language, right? It's something that someone that only speaks English and doesn't uh, want to spend a ton of time studying, um, just looking at it, you're going to miss some things. Um, and this isn't like an obvious, awesome thing that you're going to be like, oh, the word for mountain in Greek is... Yeah, the word for mountain in Greek is aras. There you go. Um, and it means mountain or hill. Um, and it's the, actually the same word where it says, 
you are the light of the world. A city on a aras cannot be hidden. It's a mountain. Um, and, and so when people look to the mountains, remember we said this? When people look to the mountains, they can see the religious tendencies of that culture or that, or the, that person. And in this one, we're told we are the light of the world. We are that city on a mountain that cannot be hidden. There's a component of being a Christian that requires us to publicly display Christ-like actions. There's a quote here by Charles Spurgeon. He says, Christ never contemplated the production of secret Christians, Christians whose virtues would never be displayed, pilgrims who would travel to heaven by night and never be seen by their fellow pilgrims or anyone else. It's not an option to be a secret Christian. That, that doesn't make sense, okay? You don't read the Sermon on the Mount and think, I can get by by coming to church and that's about it. Like, right? That, that doesn't make sense. If you're reading it and trying to learn something, that doesn't make sense. Let's look at our next slide here, another quote. This is from David Guzik. Uh, he's a commentator that I like to, to read. Um, he says, Jesus never challenged us to become salt or light. He simply said that we are. And we are either fulfilling or failing that given responsibility. That's a challenge. <laughs> we are the salt. We are the light. You don't have the option. Your only option is I'm a Christian or not a Christian, right? Once you say you're a Christian, you are the salt and the light. That's what, that's what Jesus is telling us. I'm going to read something that's not going to be on the screen, but John 8 verse 12 says this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. With Jesus saying that he's the light of the world, that makes the declaration that we are the light of the world even more profoundly important, right? We're supposed to follow after Jesus. We are the light of the world just as Jesus was the light of the world. It's kind of crazy if you think about it. High expectations. Just like the Old Testament stories where mountains made people feel closer or more connected to God or even to false gods, we are to be the light on the mountain that cannot be hidden that allows people to be connected to God. We are to be the light on the mountain that allows people to be connected to God. I'm going to call up my father-in-law, Cliff, and also the, those that are going to be serving communion. You can come on up now at this time. Um, and I have a slide here for an application question. What are the obvious things you are doing that say, I belong to Christ? What are the obvious things you are doing that say, I belong to Christ? If a Christian t-shirt is what comes to mind, or a bumper sticker, I want to challenge you to think a little deeper than that. And the reason why I called my father-in-law Cliff up is because yesterday we happened to be talking, and he shared a story with me that I thought, this is applicable to what we um, want to take out from the story of Go Tell It on the Mountain. So, Thanks, Aaron. Um, 
if you were to talk to people around me in my world today, um, probably most, if not all of them, know I'm a Christian. My neighbors, where I worked, the coffee shop I go to, as people get to know me, they know I get a chance to share about my relationship with Christ and that I'm a follower of Christ and I love Jesus. Um, Aaron and I were talking yesterday about regrets a little bit. And um, that's not always been the case. I came to faith and saving knowledge of Christ when I was a, a early teenager. And um, some of you may not believe this, but I was insecure in those days. Anybody else here ever been insecure? Um, growing up is hard. And when you're in high school, sometimes the most important thing in your life is fitting in, being popular, being cool. And in high school, I was a good student, I was a good athlete, I was a good friend, and I was an undercover Christian. And um, about the most anybody ever knew about me as being a Christian is I could admit I went to church on Sunday, and that was that wasn't too, too difficult, but I didn't share my faith. And um, it's really a regret that I have now. I started coming to Randall just about the time I graduated from high school. And I really became convicted that that wasn't the way I wanted to live my life. And I'm also maturing. That's hard to believe. <laughs> um, but you start to realize what's the most important thing in your life, what really counts, what matters. And faith in Christ is the single most important thing in the world. And I remember there were three of us in high school that were really close, my very best friend, Jeff. And I was convicted. I needed to share Christ with Jeff. And I did. And nothing happened. And I was absolutely destroyed. I was so, so sad about that. And uh, a dear friend of mine, some of you remember Jack Irvin, told me, I'm not responsible. I was still trying to do this in my own strength. Like, I can share Christ and then he'll become a Christian. It's like, no, you're responsible to share Christ, but God's the one who's gonna do the work. And a few years later, um, you know, probably four or five years later, I'm married, Deb and I are in Philadelphia, Jeff's in San Francisco at three o'clock in the morning. Jeff calls me and I led him to Christ. It's the very first person I ever got to lead to Christ. That was I'm a little emotional. Jeff is with God in heaven right now. But that was something that God gave me the privilege of doing. And as we were talking yesterday, coming up on our 50th reunion, in a couple of years, and I just think about all the kids that I didn't, and in fact, at that point, um, most of these people I'm not in contact with, they have no influence in my life, but I wanted to impress them. I wanted them to like me, and that was more important. Um, it's really hard to stand out uh, as a young man, to stand alone. I pray for you all, wherever you are, it's hard to stand by yourself. It's so important that we have others that we can pray with and encourage each other, but it's hard to stand alone. 
And um, just recently, my wife ran across this old friend, Jim, of the other, of the three of us, and he looked awful. He looked like he was dying of a drug overdose or something, and it was clear that he is struggling. And um, I tried to reach out to him. I can't, I don't have his phone number anymore, I don't have his email, but God's really put him on my heart. I would ask you to pray for Jim that we can connect again. I know right now he is opposed to God, something he posted on Facebook, which I don't follow, but Deb saw. Um, and I just think about the fact I could have been sharing my faith with Jim at those years. Would that have changed what his story is right now? I don't know. God knows. But I just ask that we, we do that. And so I, I guess what I'm going to say to encourage you when we talk about telling it on the mountain, um, think about what's the most important thing. It's not my insecurities. It's not, is somebody going to think less of me because I'm a Christ follower? It's how do we share the good news that we have? And we want to tell that and allow God to change them through his power, not ours. But this is such a great story that we have to share. And um, I just pray, especially for you who are younger, that you don't look back 50 years later in high school and go, I wish I had lived my life differently. My faith would have been more obvious to people. Others of us right now, maybe we're new and we're thinking about, I could have shared Christ with this individual. We want to not have regrets. We, we have such great news. We want to be able to share it with people. And um, I just encourage you to do that. Pray with each other. Think about it ahead of time. I've had the best opportunities I ever have to share are preceded by prayer, that I have a specific opportunity to talk to my neighbor Rick, and then God opens an opportunity, something like that. So that's just it. I, as I say, we all, we all have some insecurities, um, but we have a God who is with us and who cares for us and will stand with us. We've got God with us. You know, who else do we need to be afraid of uh, what somebody would think about? So that's my story. Thanks. And as we close uh, this morning, as we're about to head over to communion time, as you can see, having priorities straight is really what we're talking about, right? Our, the highest priority is that we have this great news that we need to tell. We need to tell people. And our lives need to portray such a Christ-like character that when we tell them, they're not like, well, you're no different than me, Right? But I know we can also put the cart before the horse when we talk about this thing because just going and telling the news that maybe you don't deem as the most important is also a problem, right? If you don't deem this, this news as the most important thing in your life, well, then it's my prayer that today you would realize that a relationship with Christ is the only thing in life that matters. It's the only thing that we need to care about in our lives and telling other people about it needs to be something that just naturally flows out of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for Jesus who you sent for us. 
and who died for us and for the love that you have for us. I pray that we would each realize the importance of what you did for us and that it would change our lives so drastically that we couldn't help but tell everyone. In your name, amen.